Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I will give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to William A. Adams. He is an award-winning DNI innovator, engineering trailblazer, and philanthropist. He was the first technical advisor to Microsoft's chief technology officer, and William has so much more going on than just those few things. So I'm excited to have him here today and tell us a little bit more about his story, his passions. So thank you so much, William. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit more about you? Well, thank you for having me. Um, my name is William Albert Adams. <laughs> the A is for Albert. I don't know what my mom was thinking. All I, all I can imagine is Albert as an Einstein. He's going to be smart. So uh, I'm 58. I live in uh, Washington State, where I've been for the last umpteen years working at Microsoft. Um, I actually recently left Microsoft back in September after 24 years of service, um, just doing all sorts of engineering stuff. Um, and in general, I've been in engineering, software engineering for what, almost 40 years um, professionally. And uh, I've just seen everything from the birth of the internet to cell phones to mega data centers and cloud services and uh, everything in between. And along the way, I've always had a passion for people, helping people learn stuff, um, helping communities learn stuff, um, and things like that. So I, even though I've had a career in tech, I've also spent quite a lot of years in that career um, training people uh, in tech and just listening to people and helping them grow their careers and, and things like that. That's basically, um, that's, that's the nugget of my start. And these days I'm focused on furthering, uh, further helping people get an equity share of technology because, you know, as, as wealth is built on tech these days, I'd like to have more um, women and minorities uh, get a piece of that. So I'm just doing whatever I can to uh, help. And I have specific things I'm doing that we can talk about later. That's me in a nutshell. Great. So you mentioned, of course, like your longstanding career at Microsoft and being in software engineering. So can you take us a little bit through kind of the background of technology through your eyes? Um, because as you mentioned, you also like the people side of things. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that uh, very early on. So I, I started uh, programming when I was about 12 years old. My, I had an uncle that gave me a, a personal computer. And, and this is before the Apple One came out. <laughs> this is way back. Very first personal computers was uh, called this Commodore Pet was the, the name of this thing. And so I taught myself how to program. And at that time, I was a very shy a precocious little kid, you know, I mean, I was into sports and all that sort of stuff, but I was so shy. I could not even answer the phone. The phone would ring and I would run from it. You know, I was just, so having a computer that I could actually control and do things and, and whatnot was perfect for me. Right. It's like, I don't have to deal with people. Um, that's how I started, you know? And then I would say by the time I got into uh, college, that's when I, I 
came out of myself and became a little bit more interactive and, and all that sort of stuff. But I've always had a passion for technology, whether it was um, early physics and chemistry sets or electronic sets or the, that earliest computer or whatnot. I've always been a tinkerer. Um, so that's just been a baseline of my life, right? I just like to tinker with stuff, um, including things like taking my mom's car apart and putting it back together. I think I got all the parts, right? So I would just do stuff. And that's just led through a, a lifetime of learning different programming languages, different hardware systems. Um, and I've evolved as tech has evolved. I mean, I've literally been there since the beginning of the personal computers. And I've done a bit of everything that's happened since then. Um, so it, it's hard to explain all that because there's a, you know, 40 some odd years <laughs> of tech evolution. Um, but tech's always been in my background. I've always evolved with it. And to this day, I continue to write programs and explore new things. And, um, and that's just the way I am. I'm always learning something, right? Something new. Which is necessary in the world of technology. Yeah. yeah, every minute there's something new. So it's like if you get complacent and say, oh, now I've learned this thing. I'm going to stick with this for the 10 years. It's like, well, see all those other people that are running past you? <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, there's something new. Right. So. Now, would you be able to share a little bit about what it was like working at Microsoft and some of the big wins that you had there? Yeah, the big ones are hard to explain because it's always esoteric stuff. It's not like, I built Windows. It's like, no, I built a piece that everybody used, including Windows. But the, the tech wins were things that were just core technologies um, that everybody used, right? And by everybody in the company using it, like, for example, I'll give one that's possibly um, easy to understand. Um, we connect to databases, right? Uh, there's a core piece of technology that I owned and, and helped drive for a few years that helps everybody connect to databases. So I can literally say every, almost every product within the company at that time used this component. And therefore, since Microsoft was used by a lot of people on the planet, this little tiny component was on everyone's computer on the planet, right? You have to get that kind of technology fairly right, um, because if you don't, it causes big problems, <laughs> right? Um, big viruses and uh, internet destroying uh, things and all that. So the big wins are just core components like that that I've worked on where it's like, oh, if this doesn't work, the internet goes down, <laughs> right? Ooh, no pressure here. So. Uh, I've worked on a few things like that. I worked on some cutting edge things that never saw the light of day. Um, I worked on this one thing that I, I like to call NSA in a box, uh, which was about giving you, um, giving your bosses a look at all the network traffic that was coming off of your machine because they're trying to track who's sending out our secret documents, you know. Um, that we didn't ship, thank God. But I've worked on it you know, very low level stuff, very high level stuff. Um, so it's just all over the map. And even cloud computing, some of the early things like our identity system, which is how you log in, right? 
Um, I, I own that for a little bit of, of time. So it's, at, when you're at Microsoft, you know, it's a world-sized company. So everything you do, or almost everything you do, uh, has the potential of impacting just gazillions of people, right? And lots of machines around the world, because this is what people use to run their business, right? Uh, I like to distinguish that from like a Facebook, um, where it's like, okay, that's nice. You can go friend people and blah, blah, blah. You don't run your business on Facebook. You know, no one's trying to run a bank ATM machine off Facebook, <laughs> I hope. Um, but Microsoft is in the space where people try to run the business, their government off of Microsoft products. So it's, it's that kind of scale, right? I know it's not very specific, but it, that's the kind of stuff I've done over all those years. Yeah. And I mean, since you have such uh, a depth of technology from where it was even just 10 years ago throughout, you know, your lifetime at Microsoft. Yeah. Now, how is it that you try to help and encourage women and minorities in the tech world? And why is that so important to you? Oh, this goes back to, um, I would say the earliest point at which I really thought about this was around 2000. Um, I was an engineering manager, which meant I hired people, built teams and whatnot. And I just, uh, there's two observations I had. One was as I was coming into the company, there was a, a African-American guy who was leaving the company and suing the company for discrimination. It was in the sales org and he said, I got passed over and blah, 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 and all this stuff. And I remember he contacted me. He was like, oh, you want to get in on this lawsuit? Uh, and at that time I was like, no, 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 who knows? Maybe it was you, you know, everything's fine. Um, over the years, I came to understand what he was talking about. But at that time in 2000, he said that and I was like, oh, okay, well, let me do what I'm gonna do. And within my own engineering team, I thought, why aren't there more women, right? Where are the women? <laughs> so I, I made a conscious effort to hire more women. Why? I'm a black guy in America. Equity is always a thing. So equity for my own tribe, for women, for other minorities. Um, so it's kind of inbuilt, I would say, to where I came from culturally, that just general fairness. Right. It's like, well, why not? Because every every other tribe is hiring their own. <laughs> you know, where are there's not enough women here, so we need to hire more women. There's at that time I wasn't even thinking of African Americans, you know, because we were zero. <laughs> but at least I could increase the number of women. So I focused on um, hiring women in that particular group. And we had a huge percentage. 12%, which today seems kind of pathetic, you know, um, but in engineering at that time, uh, the company was more like 9% female in engineering. Uh, so I just, I just made a concerted effort and that includes, oh, well, you know, the common refrains are, the women just aren't at the colleges. Like, well, go to an all women's college then. <laughs> you know, why are you looking to MIT to get a bunch of women when they've already shown that they don't have enough women in our field? Go to Mills College where it's nothing but women. You know, uh, go to community colleges, go to these different places, go to different countries where there's a higher percentage of women in PhD programs. 
Um, so I did stuff like that because I thought it was uh, necessary, right? So would you say that tech and engineering is more inclusive now? And is it more representative of society or is there still work to do? Oh, there's always still work to do. I mean, there's, I'll tell you the statistics on uh, African-Americans in tech, for example. And, and in tech, what I mean by that is in technical roles. I don't mean janitors at Microsoft. I don't mean salespeople and marketing because we're actually overrepresented uh, there. But in core tech roles where people are making decisions about what the technology is going to do, you know, they're writing code, they're managing teams, all that. When I was uh, in early 2000, when I first started, um, two and a half, three percent African-American in tech roles at Microsoft. Um, by the time I left, it was a whopping three and a half to four percent. So that's over 24 years. It increased by one percent. All right. Now, women in that same time period probably went up 20 or 30 percent. Right. Hispanics probably doubled from 3% to 6 or 7%. We play games with the numbers because we lump in Hispanics with African Americans to blur the line, right? It's like, oh, you know, African American and Hispanic. It's like, no, <laughs> let's separate that out, you know? Uh, so there's been progress, and it's noticeable when you're on campus when you see a lot of the interns might be something different than what you would have seen in the past right? That's all positive. Um, but more importantly is how is um, the attitudes changing? How is it that we're being more inclusive, right? Not just how are we buffering the numbers. Oh, we've got 10% more of this or 20% more of this. But are we listening to them? Or are we just turning them into um, white males wearing pants, you know, no matter what they came in as? Right. If we're listening to them, then the company's getting better. We're able to address a broader market. If all we're doing them is turning them into what was already there, the dominant culture, then that's a pointless game, no matter what the numbers are. Right. So you have to really think about inclusion. I think tech is being more inclusive because it's spreading more around the world. So it's not that individual companies like Microsoft, Google or whatever are becoming more inclusive. But they have engineering happening around the world. And by force, that becomes more inclusive because you're just including more cultures, right? So it's, it's, um, it's improving somewhat, but in isolation, some games are the same, right? Uh, that's how I'd characterize it. And so then being part of a minority group that over 20 years didn't have a large percentage population group, did you feel included? Did you feel heard? And because like right at the beginning, you had someone like having a lawsuit. What sort of yeah. like, because if you want to increase the numbers and like you just said, you need to listen. So how was the environment within? Um, a lot of times you will hear people talk about tech being a meritocracy. And I would say, mm, yeah, yes and no. I mean, it is, but... You as a minority, whether it's women or, you know, underrepresented minorities, um, have to work a lot harder uh, 
to have the same level of influence or whatever. Um, my observation is, and this is true of society, so this is why I can step back from Microsoft and just say, well, how's it going in society in general? And it's tough, right? I mean, am I heard? No, I'm a single person in a room. Um, I'm the only one that looks like me, uh, has my experiences, my background. Um, and that was true for at least 15 of the 24 years I was there, that I'm the only black guy in the room, you know? Um, now, heaven forbid you're a black woman in the room, because you are really the only person in there, right? Not only are you black, but you're also a woman. And those rooms don't have a lot of women either, right? Now, a lot of this has changed, you know, it's improving, but this is uh, how it has been. So things get a little bit more equitable, but what really pushes it is people like me stepping away from that environment and saying, let's go create our own companies, right? That's really what changes it. And that's why I don't harp too much on they done me wrong or anything like that, because it's like, that's the environment is what it is, right? You can only change so much. What you can take away from it though, is a lifetime of experiences, uh, some number of dollars, some connections across the industry. Now do your own thing, right? Uh, that's what I take away from it. It's like, ah, that environment may or may not be fair. Um, what are you going to do about it, <laughs> right? You're going to sit around waiting for them to give you a hand or are you going to, you know, plow your own, uh, your own way? And I choose to plow my own way. What is it that you have been getting up to since leaving Microsoft? Uh, well, during the, um, oh, one thing we didn't talk about is before I even went to Microsoft, I ran my own company uh, with my brother for about 12 years. Uh, so I had a history of being an entrepreneur. And, and all the time I was at Microsoft, I was always one foot in, in the entrepreneurial space because it never left me. I was always like, okay, I'm staying for another two years, but that's it. Then I'm off to, you know, but I always found, you know, um, something to create and do. One of the things I created while I was there was called the LEAP program, which we can talk about um, some more. But it was about um, hiring more women and minorities into technical roles, you know, at Microsoft. And that was really transformative, both for the company, for the industry, and for me personally. Um, that really put me down, down this path of, um, this empathetic path of, I am going to help um, build the Motown of tech, if you will. Uh, and for those who don't, know, who don't know what that reference means is, uh, in Detroit, Motown is a record label that birthed people like Stevie Wonder, um, the Jackson Five, Aretha Franklin, all these old, uh, all the, the best classic, uh, black folks in um, entertainment singing uh, came through Motown. And I have a similar desire to do that for black technologists. It's like find the talent, help the talent um, along, uh, buttress it with investments and put them on the stage and, and help them flourish, right? So roughly speaking, that's what I'm up to. I'm up to um, building software, finding talent, building a network, pulling it together so that uh, we can build women and minority-owned companies that are going to be as talented and as fruitful and as acquirable 
uh, as their counterparts in the dominant cultures, right? That's what I'm up to. And so is that still like connected through the LEAP program at Microsoft or is it kind of like yeah. your own thing and then like the LEAP program is still functioning at Microsoft without you? Yeah, that's just me, my own thing. Um, LEAP is, uh, has been at Microsoft for seven years now, started in 2015, it's still ongoing. Um, it's now a federally accredited um, apprenticeship program. Um, it's worldwide. They have people um, delivering stuff in Africa and Europe and Canada. Uh, I think they recently added um, Mexico or Brazil. Um, so it, it's a thing, and it'll keep being a thing for a while. It'll morph from what it was originally, but uh, it is now one of the ways, one of the primary ways that Microsoft gets out and, and gets people who are off the beaten path, if you will, right? Um, I'm still, I don't have anything to do with it because I don't work for them anymore, but I know who runs the program and we consult every once in a while. And what I'm doing is you could think of as a, a 2.0 and a much larger scale of what we did there. Um, but it's my own thing. There's no leap connection directly. And so what sort of things do you provide to help minorities and women through your own project to get them further in tech? Yeah, well, a lot of it has to do with just being relevant so that people can actually find and uh, get into stuff I do. So, for example, a year ago, more than a year ago, yeah, I started uh, doing podcasts, for example. Um, and part of that is just getting the word out, like, who is William A. Adams, right? And what do you have to offer? This exact question, right? So part of it is just awareness, letting people know, it's like, yeah, I'm a guy who was in tech. I, I worked at Microsoft. Here's uh, what I did. Um, part of it is uh, writing. So I write a lot of code and I blog about that code. Uh, so it's showing people, hey, here's code that you can use to do things that you want to do. Um, so it's blogs, uh, blogs, writing code. I have a bunch of code on this thing called GitHub, which is a repository of source code for everyone in the world to see. Um, I point people at it regularly. I do speaking engagements. And this year, the focus is going to be on building specific products. I can work on a product right now, which says, hey, look at all this AI stuff that's coming along, like this chat GPT and you know, um, isn't it about time we change the user interface to how computers work and leverage more of the skills that you people have, storytelling, you know, philosophy, psychology, these things are way more important than your ability to slam keys on a keyboard because that skill is becoming taken over by the machine. It can program itself. But how do you give those programs empathy, right? How do you make it so that the robots that we develop don't just kill us? <laughs> this requires some other skill sets. So I'm helping, um, I'm putting together software services. Um, we have a network of like lawyers, accountants, bookkeepers, other programmers, such that when you come along and say, I, I've got this idea, I wanna do this thing, we can say, well, here's some code you can start with. Here's some people to help you program. You're gonna need accounting or else you're gonna get in trouble. 
boom, boom, boom. So we're building the network. So this year is all about building the network, building some code, and then going out on the stage and saying, here's the, the, the set of services that are here. Come on, right? That's what I'm doing. And so what is the long-term goal for your business? Uh, the long-term goal is, or what's the success measures? The success measures are essentially uh, how, many, um, how many companies can I help? How many careers can I launch? How many multimillionaires can I help mint, right? The success over, let's say, 10 years will be, have we managed to get two or three hits such that people look at, um, look at, it's called Wave Studio, look at Wave Studio and say, that's the place to go. If you want to get a leg up uh, and do really killer stuff, you want to go there because that's going to lead to the best outcomes for you and your burgeoning business. Go through that venture studio. Um, so that's, that's what I'm looking to gain over the next few years is that we've gotten to that point where we are in fact attracting um, killer talent that is developing the best applications on the planet with no excuses. Like, well, that's pretty good for some kids. You know, it's like, no, this is good, period. No qualifications. Right. That's what I'm after. And what has it been like going back to your entrepreneurial roots? Um, it's like jumping off a cliff. Right. Because you you were good back in the day and then you spent a whole bunch of years in the the, the cushion of a Microsoft job where you're a manager and you got other people to do stuff for you and you get paid regardless of how bad things are and you know the stock is going up and it's really cushy and you've got insurance and then you jump away from all of that and suddenly you're the one who has to go out and do everything and are you really a good coder or was that all just smoke and mirrors you know um can you find talent or was that the recruiters that were so good. So it's a wake up, right? It's like, oh, uh, but the wake up so far has been, no, actually I am good. <laughs> you know, uh, I still can code. Uh, and I am actually, it's not just I can code, but I can do things that I haven't seen other people do. And that's um, part of my specialty. And uh, I am able to attract talent because the word is getting out and people do listen and people do connect and say, hey, I'm so-and-so and and I want to do that. Um, So it's it's jumping off a cliff, um, but I'm not afraid and it hasn't been horrible and it's been wonderful and it's getting better. That's how I characterize it, right? Right. But yeah, it's scary initially. Of course. Now, you mentioned earlier, you know, chat GPD and different technology and stuff like that. What is your take on biases within AI? Ooh, yes. So um, that's an interesting question and and really a a focus of um, one of the reasons why I really want to get into the AI space for our communities. while I was in the, the office of the CTO, I, I worked on this thing called Data Dignity, which was all about, and this is like five years ago, which was all about where does the data come from? Um, how does it introduce bias into models? 
you know, and, and what do we do about it? And who gets paid for that data? And, uh, and on and on, all these, all these issues. Um, bias was a big one because there's a, uh, I'll give you an example. There's a program out there in the world. I, I, can't, I think it's called Compass. And it's what um, courts and prisons use to uh, help them decide whether they think uh, what the recidivism rate of someone is going to be, meaning what's the likelihood of this person returning to prison after we let them go, right? Well, guess where the data comes from? <laughs> it comes from the people that are already in prison. And that data says, well, if you're black, you're more likely to end up back in prison again. So there's the bias right there, right, from the get-go. And they did post studies on this data where they showed that um, it's not true. Uh, well, it's not, it's not as unbalanced as what the program tells them it is. Like it's hyperbalanced the other way where they say, oh, this white prisoner, yeah, they're good. This black, oh, he's definitely gonna you know, come back. It's like, no, they actually are like 50-50. But it's overly weighed one way or the other because of the data and the data reinforces, you know, what the bad biases in the system. So we went through and had, at least at Microsoft, and I'm not sure if other companies are doing this or not, where we have an ethics board for um, data gathering, where we think about things like this, like, well, what are the biases here? And uh, where did we get the data? And, and what are we going to do with it? And how does it train the AI? And um, and you see this in things where the initial facial recognition systems, for example, trained on white men with beards, <laughs> you know, can't recognize a small Asian woman and distinguish that from a child, right? Because they just didn't have the data. Uh, so you have to be um, careful with AI and especially um, go out of our way to make sure that various communities are included in the data gathering and in the training of those models so that we have a voice. If you don't, then they'll be trained a certain way, uh, just like our medical system. It's like the drugs are all developed against white men. Well, what about the women? <laughs> and what about the people in India who aren't white men in the US? That heart medicine is not gonna work for them because they're completely different. Different diet, different stature, different body type. So you have to be very careful to make sure that the data uh, includes lots of different sets and that the decisions that are made on that data also include different opinions, right? Uh, or else it gets skewed one way or the other. And is there an easy is not the word, I, so I don't want to say like an easy solution to making AI less biased or like how, no. <laughs> how can tech work to see those things that they're not just like immediately jumping to those conclusions. So like with the example you gave with the prison return rates, if you're starting with more black people in prison, of course their return rates are going to be higher. So what is kind of yeah. the way to circumnavigate the immediate data response and conclusion jumping? Yeah, it's a really hard problem because you have to say, is there some objective reality, right? Is there some truth in the universe that we're trying to get to? And the answer is no. Um, now, it could become a philosophical or religious um, discussion, and it should, perhaps, because if you were taking a religious viewpoint or a philosophical viewpoint, 
you would say there are universal truths. We should all be good. We should not kill each other. We should be, you know, the, you turn to religion to come up with answers to these um, anti-biasing questions, right? By forcing a different bias, <laughs> right? We should all be nice. Um, but that could get out of hand too, because like, well, should we all be Christian or should we all be Muslim or should we all be Hindus? It's like, well, uh, so you have to, where is the universal truth? And this is a humanity question because without AI, without the machines, the same problems happen with humans, right? The AI is just doing the same thing we do, but faster. And that's why it's so problematic, right? It'll get to the conclusion faster and that's problematic when you have things like smart bombs and drones that can autonomously shoot people on their own. It's like, wait a minute, hold on, hold on. <laughs> Not so fast, buddy. Um, so I think this is a real human problem. And it's something that we have to take up as humanity to say, all right, is there a, uh, is there a humanistic truth? And this is why I think it's so much more important now to include more of the humanities in tech, if you will. Uh, I mentioned storytelling and philosophy and religion and all that. It's like, yes, the only way to make this better, I believe, is to incorporate more of those different um, modalities, mm, disciplines, to include more of those disciplines in our um, decision-making processes around tech and data gathering and model building and all the rest. Don't just leave it to the um, data scientists, right? That's a pure numbers game. It's like, well, that's horrible because all it's going to do is overemphasize the biases we currently have. If we wanna go forward, we need to have a religious conversation and philosophical conversation uh, to incorporate more of our humanity, right? Because if we don't incorporate our, our humanity, uh, it's just gonna be a mechanical system and we will be snuffed out. Right. So in connection with humanity, do you think that technology should be for everyone and like at what sort of levels? Well, it already is. I mean, technology has been for everyone since we invented fire. <laughs> you know, it's like technology is always there. Um, access to advanced technologies is the perhaps a good question in terms of um, well, who should have access to the ability to pose questions to an infinite knowledge computer? Well, everyone should, right? Um, that's the ideal. Uh, the reality is there's always going to be people who are in control of that technology who are going to segregate a certain level of access to themselves and say, well, this is what we get to do and you guys get to do that. <laughs> right? I think that uh, we all have cell phones now. And if you roll back the clock, not very far, 30 years, and you said everybody on the planet, including people in slums, are going to have a supercomputer in their pocket. And by supercomputer, I mean something that could perform like a supercomputer of 30, 40 years ago, um, which these do. <laughs> If you said back then, everyone should have a supercomputer. It'd be like, oh, come on, supercomputer. Those things are like the size of a football field and blah, blah, blah. And they can compute like missile trajectories and send a person to the moon and blah. 
all this, all this stuff they can do, right? And yet here they are. We all have them now. So mission accomplished. So do that again 30 years into the future. Today, there's a bunch of stuff that's like, man, if everybody had the blah, 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 that, that would be, that'll destroy the government. It's like, eh, just give it 30 years and we'll all have it and it'll be in our glasses and no one will think about it. <laughs> so technology is like that, right? And do you have any predictions of some sort of technology, big changes in the next 30 years? Yeah, uh, well, the biggest uh, prediction I made has to do with the structure of work, actually, and how, um, how work gets done. Um, you will, uh, right now, we have mega corporations like a Microsoft or Google, whatever, and they have thousands of engineers all under one roof, right? All marching towards uh, singular such of things. I think that model is going to disappear. And what's going to happen is since I, uh, the AI, generically, the AI is going to become a coding partner of mine, and me plus five other friends, plus an AI, plus a philosopher and a, um, a religious person, we're going to tackle jobs. An entity like a Microsoft is going to be, have a few thousand employees, but they're going to be managing uh, tasks like, okay, we need this operating system thing done. Me and my buddies, my crew, we're going to get together. We're going to bid on the thing. We're going to knock it out. Uh, three months, it's done. We disband. We go off and do something else. I think there's going to be a lot more of that sort of people coming together and getting a task done and disbanding and grouping with other people. I think the labor market is going to be a lot more fluid than it is today because I have AI in my pocket. So a lot of the mundane stuff that I could do, yeah, I will just do that. I won't be writing code anymore. There's no need for it, right? I'll just tell the thing, all right, we need this compression algorithm that has these characteristics. I go, okay, I got that. Now we need to connect it to the, so I'm an orchestrator, right? That's how technology is going to change. As for the, and that's how the work is going to change, right? So we'll get way better at just, coming together disbanding, coming together disbanding, and that'll, that'll be the, the heartbeat of the work. As far as actual tech is concerned, everything will just get smaller, less wires, you know, more powerful, um, more embedded, all the classic stuff that you could possibly imagine. And then there'll be something that you can't even think of that will show up within the next 10 or 15 years. And it's like, where did that come from, right? And that's the way technology is. Because when I was growing up, um, we had this vision of the Dick Tracy watch. It was like this uh, detective from the 50s. It was a cartoon thing, Dick Tracy. And he had a watch and it was his, his phone, right? It's like, huh, we actually have that now. The Apple, you know, ultra watch, you can make phone calls on the watch, right? It's like, oh, well, kind of evolved. So those kind of things you can predict because if it's in science fiction, it'll probably happen. All the stuff like flying cars and all that other stuff is like, probably not. But it's more likely that you're going to have um, compute modules embedded in your brain, you know, and glasses that augment your eyesight or contact lenses that augment your eyesight and hearing and uh, make you an enhanced human. That stuff's more likely. 
you know, than flying cars. Because it's just along the miniaturization curve of what's already happening, right? Like, I asked smaller, faster, more powerful, lighter weight, cheaper. Um, so all of that stuff's going to happen. And you can just imagine what it means. And then there's just going to be something out of the blue that's like, bam! I didn't know that we could now do the, uh, Star Trek has that uh, replicator, right? I didn't know that we could just replicate stuff. Now it's like, yeah, we can. Because we've, we cracked the code on how to put matter together. And we have the replicator now. <laughs> it's going to be stuff like that, where you're just like, where did that come from? I didn't see it coming, but that's what's going to happen, right? Right. And I think it's so cool to hear you talk about this stuff because of your background, your knowledge and technology to be like, this is where it was when I was a kid. This is where it is now yeah. to kind of like see this is where it's going. Yes. Yeah, see those projections. Yeah. Now, one of the other things I did mention in my intro is that you are a philanthropist. So do you want to share a little bit about that? Yeah, my philanthropy is um, now I'm not I'm not a Bill Gates level philanthropist, <laughs> but I do what I can. Um, and the general idea is uh, give back. Right. It's like uh, when you're in this technology stuff, I mean, I recognize that um, as a, a software guy for so many decades, uh, we got paid a whole ton of money. Right. And I think what, um, what I took from that is that we have a responsibility. The society around us said, look, we think this stuff is really important. We're going to give you a bunch of the society's treasure. And we entrust you to do the right things with it, right? So I take that as, okay, so I was entrusted with this treasure, not just to buy yet another boat or another car, or another vacation, but to invest into the society that gave it to me, right? To help the society get better. Um, otherwise, it's like, you gave me all your money. You worked hard for that money because you thought I would do something good for you. And then I didn't, <laughs> right? I just ran away to the beach. <laughs> uh, so I, I feel, so this is my philosophical perspective on philanthropy. And it's not, just to hand out money. Oh, you gave it all to me. Now I'm just going to give it out to everybody. And you get 100 and you get 100. But to think of things, you know, that are truly beneficial. And I'll give you an example. So I, my kids' school, I have two children in elementary school. And um, in the last couple of years, I gave them um, their school, when we came back from COVID, $15,000, right? So here you go, matched by Microsoft, $30,000. Um, it's still cheaper than sending one kid to private school. This is public school, right? And with $30,000, they can buy headsets and speakers for all the teachers, digital whiteboards, all sorts of stuff that they couldn't have done otherwise, right? Um, that seems like a good use, and it benefits the whole community, right? Um, I've done things like uh, giving grants to people who are doing software development to give them a leg up. Oh, here you go, $5,000 to help uh, further that virtual reality museum thing that you're working on. Um, so I, I picked things like that. And then on the, in the pure, like giving money away, we do things like in India, we have family in India. So my wife is from India. And um, sometimes we're giving money for operations. Sometimes we're giving money for weddings. 
some time for uh, recently we helped one of our sisters uh, buy a washing machine, you know, a clothes washing machine. Uh, so it's little things like that that are quality of life things that it's like, okay, you can survive without the washing machine, but your life is going to be so much better if you had one. So here you go, right? So I, I try to do things like that. Some of them are just little like quality of life things. Some of them are more structured. Um, and some of them are like, let me help this community as a whole get better and not just give money, but also give my time and, my, and connect to my network of people to bring in more expertise to help you solve a problem, right? Um, so that's, that's it in general. And it, the root of it all is just being aware and being empathetic, right? It's like, I'm intentional. I want to help people. I'm empathetic to these various um, places that people are at. So I try to give what I can. Right. Great. Well, I really appreciate you sharing that. I think philanthropy is really important and something that some people just do not know a lot about. So I appreciate you sharing how you prioritize your giving back. Yeah. And it can be at any level. I mean, uh, you give a you give a dollar to someone on the street, that's philanthropic, right? And uh, if you're conscious about it by always keeping extra dollars in your car, then that's great. Right. Yes. And before I start to wrap things up, is there anything else you would like to share with the listeners today? Uh, if there's one thing I, I, I try to share with any, anyone who listens is um, we, can, we can make a better world if we just treat each other better. <laughs> That's the bottom line. It's as easy as that. Um, I'm doing my best to um, do what I can. Um, I'm not going to solve all the world's problems, but if we're all just you know, look at each other and have some empathy and treat each other better, the world gets better. Definitely. At the end of all my episodes, I do ask my guests a random question that doesn't have to do with what we've been talking about. My question for you is, how do you like your eggs? Oh, over medium on pancakes with syrup. That's how I like my eggs. All right, that brings this episode to a close. Of course, I will be leaving William's website in the description. So if you want to check that out, that link will be right there. It brings you to all of his socials, YouTube, blogs, all the good information about what he is up to. So feel free to go check that out. And if you would like to connect with the podcast and haven't already ready, I encourage you to reach, go to the description for our website, which brings you, of course, to all of our past episodes past resources, and of course, our social media. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. So I always appreciate follows on those pages. And if you would like to be a guest on the show, there my email is in the description as well. If you want to reach out, I'd be happy to hear about your story. And if you would like to support the podcast, there is a link to do that in the description as well. So thank you so much, William, for spending time with me today. And to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time. Bye. Thank you for having me. Bye.